It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raise, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this old way. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. And attorney. Hi, everyone. Rose DeFrancisco. For those of you who know about the show, the show's in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, nostalgia. And But let, let's start a little bit about estate planning. And, and Beth, we're going to lead off with you. I know you're not feeling well today, but let's give That's it a okay. shot. That, if I start coughing, I'll just get away from the mic. Dear Mr. Connors... I have several pets, and upon my passing, I would like to ensure the safety and care of my beloved pets. How can I best do that? Thank you, Otto. That name sounds uh, suspicious to me. I don't know, but maybe it's not. Okay. You have German relatives. Isn't that a a very good German name? Yes, it is. Okay. That is how Otto got his name. He's a schnauzer. From Texas, and he's a very good schnauzer. All right, so if it's if you know, assuming there's nobody out in the immediate family that's going to take care of your pets, you may want to set up a trust for them. The idea behind setting up a trust for a pet: you leave the pet to somebody, and you set aside a sum of money to take care of that pet, and you have certain terms and parameters. And of course, we also have to say what happens to that money if when the pet passes away. And a lot of times what we do, leave that money, if there's any money left, we leave that money either to the person who takes care of the pet or perhaps to an animal charity like ASPCA and and so forth. And a pet trust, hopefully, in New York State, you're allowed to, you you know, segregate money and trust for a pet, but it can only last for 21 years. Sometimes we can work around that if you have a parrot or some other kind of pet that, that has life expectancy longer than 21 years. But the answer is, you know, you set up a trust for the benefit of the pet. You either put some money in that trust while you're alive or you fund it after you're gone. And, of course, one of the things, you know, everybody talks about Lenore Hemsley who put who left uh, $10 million to her dog. But I don't think the dog ever survived the uh, probate contest. So you got to plan in advance. you got to think things out. You know, if you have any questions, you can give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. Rose, what question do you have? So my question from a viewer is this. It's Stephen from Brooklyn. Dear Mr. Connors, I own real estate and people tell me that I should do an LLC. What exactly is an LLC and what are the benefits of doing an LLC? Okay, well, an LLC is a limited liability company. And basically, you know, in the old days, we used to do what we call S corporations, C corporations, if we owned real estate, if we want to protect that real estate from lawsuits. Like, for instance, let's say for the sake of argument, you own a... 10 family house. You have a fire in that building. Some of the tenants sue you. Well, if your building's in an LLC or in the old style corporations, let's say the people who have the lawsuit, they can't go after your personal items, your personal belongings, your house. So you segregate your assets, you protect them. And the limited liability protects protects you from lawsuits. And in some respects, it can also protect from the inside out. In other words, it's very hard to get a judgment against an LLC and then start uh, against a person who owns an LLC and get payments from it. So limited liability company, it's, it's a way to protect assets from lawsuits. 
And yes, if you own an investment property in New York, an LLC is probably the best way to go. And it also, for estate planning purposes, there's some advantages of an LLC. An LLC can be used, it's easy to change the ownership of an LLC. If let's say for the sake of argument, we want to make gifts to the next generation, to the children. You know, if you have a deed to a property and you wanted to give a certain percentage of the property to your children, well, you can't really, you can, but you can't say I'm going to give 5% of this building to my son and my daughter. But it's very easy on a limited liability. You do a memorandum and basically say, I give 5 percent of the building of my LLC to my children. And sometimes why do you do this? Well, let's say you have a building that's worth $10 million and you're in a taxable state, which right now in New York is $5,740,000 per person. So let's say we got a husband and wife, they own a $10 million building. Maybe we give 1%, they have two children, they give 1% of the building to each one of their children. Father owns, let's say, 49% of the building. Mother owns 49% of the building, and each one of the children own 1% of the building. What does that do for you? Well, we get a, a discount as far as the IRS is concerned. A $10 million building, if you own 49%, is not $490,000. It gets discounted to about $300,000. So we're able to leverage assets out at a reduced rate. So in effect, we can get a $10 million asset out for a little over $6 million. That $4 million in savings, if used properly, could save almost $2 million in taxes. You know, an LLC is a very interesting tool. You know, it's relatively new. I mean, by relatively, you know, 10, 15 years or whatever, but it's a relatively interesting tool. It's similar to what the S corporation used to be. And and again, the only problem is right now, if you did an S corporation in the past, you, you've got to like follow it through. If you did a C corporation in the past, you may want to talk to your accountant about making an S corporation because they're better tax advantages on an S corporation over a, a C corporation. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough, takes a question from the audience, asks it on his show, and we try to answer it. Here we go. Take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that uh, Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, will be here to answer one of your questions about uh, estate care, elder law, or the, the, the like. Uh, and this week's question comes from a man named Gerald, uh, Mike. Uh, he asks, what programs are there for disabled senior vets? Does my disability need to be connected to my military service for VA benefits? Gerald, uh, Mr. Connors, what's the ruling here? Well, there is such a thing as benefits for non-service-connected disability vets. In other words, let's say we have a vet who's senior citizen or whatever. His income levels below the limits, which is roughly for a single veteran $1,800 a month. The VA will pay him what's called aid in attendance to get his income up to a minimum of $1,800 a month for a single vet, $2,200 a month for a married veteran. And, you know, it can be used in a variety of different ways. It can be used for home care. It can be used for relatives to pay to take care of the vet. It can be used for assisted living. In some cases, it can help pay the nursing home bill. Now, the rules are stringent, and the rules are much different than Medicaid in New York. But if you do have a vet who suffers from a disability that's non-service connected and his income, he's having a hard time making ends meet, there are programs through the VA. There are also, obviously, if it's service connected, there are a lot of programs if it's service connected where, you know, the, the vet can apply. And, of course, in some cases, for the Vietnam vets and, and tied into Agent Orange, there's a whole set of, uh, you know, programs for, for those veterans who are service connected. 
Probably one of the best ways, if you are a veteran and you have questions, is to call Mike's office and get an answer for yourself. 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. You can also send Mike more questions at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. We'll answer some of them right here on Kevin McCullough Radio, and he'll answer some on his uh, program each weekend uh, at 8 a.m. on AM 570, The Mission, and FM 102.3, WMCA. And he'll also answer them on Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 9. 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again, Kevin. You can listen to Kevin each week or each Monday through Friday on 570 The Mission at 3 o'clock. On 970 The Answer, Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock, he has an extended hour, and Wednesdays with John Katsimatidis. So thanks again, Kevin, for giving us the opportunity to be on your show each week. I think we've got another question. Rose, do you have this question now? I do. This is from Maria. Her question is, is there a waiting period or penalty if I sell my mother's house and car for 90000 so she can qualify for Medicaid to use for assisted living or a nursing home? Okay. Well, here's the question. Selling the car, selling the house is not going to cause a penalty. You can do whatever you want with your assets. The question is, what did you do with the money from the sale? You know, if you put the the money for the sale into a trust, let's say $90,000, I don't know what you're selling for $90,000 in New York City, but if you're selling something for $90,000 and you give it away $90,000, you're going to cause roughly seven-eighth month penalty for medical assistance, Medicaid, to pay for a nursing home bill. The facilities that take Medicaid for assisted living, they usually have a one-month look-back period. So in theory, if you had, you know, let's say $100,000 and you put that money in the trust in October, in November, you could apply for assisted living Medicaid. And there are not a lot of facilities in New York that take assisted living, but there are at least 20 or 30 within the city limits. Then you can qualify for assisted living Medicaid within one month. You can also qualify for home care Medicaid within one month. For nursing home Medicaid, we do have the look back period. It depends what you do with the money, but there are all sorts of exceptions, you know, and if you buy something else, you know, and if one of these crisis situations, one of the things we look at, can we buy things? Like in other words, we may rebuy a car because an exempt resource. So somebody going to a nursing home can buy a car today, hold that car, give away maybe at some point in the future, but the money used to pay for the car is an exempt resource. We save it from a nursing home. And there are other things we can do. Where's mom going to live? Maybe she pays rent ahead of time. Maybe we buy some things, TV set, whatever. You can spend your money however you want as far as Medicaid is concerned. The problem is what do you give away? And if you have any questions about that, you can go to one of our seminars, at the end of October, we're going to be in Staten Island. We're going to be in Staten Island and Manhattan, you know, the end of October. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Rose Francisco, thanks for having me, Mike. And me, Beth Connors. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, October 28th at Bocelli Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And then again on Tuesday, October 29th in Midtown Manhattan at the Three West. 
West Club, 3 West 51st Street at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. When a desperate parent calls YCS, seeking help for their child with special needs, we are there to answer the call. Our staff provides compassionate care to children affected by trauma, autism, or developmental disabilities. Can you help us provide the services needed to keep families together? Find out how you, your company, or organization can volunteer. Learn more at YCS.org. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. October 17th, 3 West Club, the next meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of New York. Again, it's at 3 West 51st Street. Doors open at 6 o'clock, or dinner, I should say, it's at 6 o'clock. Doors open at 5.30. It's $60.00. For members, $75 for non-members. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, $75, isn't that a little expensive? Well, sometimes you can go to the New York Historical Society and you get charged almost the same thing. But at least here you get a three-course meal and you get to speak to the author at the end. And today we're very pleased to have on Michael Falco, who's going to be talking about his book, Echoes of the Civil War. Welcome to Connor's Corner, Michael. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. So what is the book about and what are you going to be talking about? Um, okay, so back in 2011, I had this crazy idea that I would visit um, all the major battlefields of the American Civil War with my pinhole canvas. And this was started as a personal project to enrich my own sort of background on the history of the Civil War. Um, I had just started playing around with pinhole cameras and discovered that um, they're amazing devices for capturing um, landscapes because there's no lens. It blurs all the details, and what happens in those photographs is it tends to let the feeling of those landscapes through. And so I thought this would be a perfect camera for photographing these old battlefields with, um, because I wanted to capture the feeling of these places. 
And so um, I headed out in 2000, in July of 2011, went to Manassas for the anniversary of Bull Run, the first big battle of the war. And while I was at Manassas, I struck up a conversation with a few reenactors. And one of them very casually mentioned that his great-great-grandfather had fought on that battlefield at Manassas. And I was looking at this gentleman, a Virginian, dressed in a Confederate uniform. And the background I was looking at, he was standing in, was this battlefield of Manassas. And I thought to myself, this is an amazing nexus of people, place, and history happening over this sesquicentennial. So it was that moment at Manassas I decided to visit reenactments as well. Um, because of this D- DNA connection, I wasn't aware that in the reenactment community, um, many of the reenactors have descendants that fought in this war. So all of a sudden, the idea of these reenactments seems much more interesting to me. And so it was on that very first battlefield visit where I just, I, my initial idea was just to sort of hike the battlefields and photograph them for my own pleasure. It sort of turned into this much bigger project where I saw this sort of um, this coming together of history and people in the country in the 21st century. Um, and we, so we could, it, it just, it created this narrative for me that I could follow. That wasn't just the landscape. It was also the Americans in the country that was still connected to this period. So I know that was lengthy, but that kind of gives you an idea of how this started for me. Now I know for you, it's probably a stupid question, but what's a pinhole camera? Okay. Um, I'll say pinhole camera. Um, I started playing around with pinhole cameras right after the event of digital photography. Digital photography really changed um, the world of photography in major ways. And um, like all, I'm a commercial photographer and journalist in New York City. That's what I do for a living. Um, I wound up having to switch to digital like everybody else. But once I switched, um, I had been shooting film for most of my career and I missed the mystery of not seeing what you were doing. And so I decided in my personal work to start using a pinhole camera. The pinhole camera is the most rudimentary camera you can photograph with. There's no lens, no viewfinder. It's just basically a box with a little pinhole aperture in the front. You put film in the back, and when you open that aperture, the light enters the camera and creates an impression on the film. So um, it's the simplest camera you can take a photograph with. And because of um, this tiny pinhole aperture, the exposures tend to be long. And so that was one of the other things I liked about these cameras and the battlefields is that I would have to set up the camera on a tripod, open that shutter, and the camera would sit and linger on that field, slowly taking in that light over time. I really liked the idea, because of the events that occurred on these fields, that the camera would be taking in that light over time Um, I just thought it was a poetic way of capturing those battlefields. I hope that explained a little bit of what the pinhole camera is and um, my interest in it. The book. What's in the book? Okay, so the book is, um, I had to sort of, um, I traveled through the country between 2011 and 2015 and followed the whole sesquicentennial timeline of the war. And I visited every major battlefield of the war um, with the cameras. and then basically attended um, the accompanying reenactments that went along with these major battles of the war. So everywhere from, you know, the deep South um, all the way up to the North, up into Gettysburg, um, I got a chance to see and explore um, all the major battlefields of the war. And some of them, you know, like um, the March to the Sea or the, the, um, 
the Carolina campaigns, those were more, those were little battles, but it was more like a driving tour of the Deep South and those kind of things. So I really got, I really wanted to see a good portion of the country that was affected by the war and um, meet people in those areas look at the battlefield today, what scars were still remaining in the landscape. I was interested in that, but also sort of what people were talking about, what they were thinking about 150 years after this event. It seemed to me when I began that the war was a lot closer than many people think. Um, and that many, many things that are happening today in our country, we can be, we can trace right back to the American civil war. So, um, it was a topical journey for me. I felt like I was sort of traveling back in time a little bit, but also carrying my 21st century self with me. So it was sort of this interesting play on time. And um, so um, I'm not sure if that answered your question. But Now, what photographs in there that you were particularly fond of or interested in or want to explain? Um, there were a number of photographs. Um, I started, um, as I said, I began the project in 2011 to follow the anniversary of the war. But I began my research for this project in 2009. I just, I realized in 2009 that this anniversary was approaching, and I thought it would be a good time for me to buckle down and really absorb this subject. And so I read for about a year and a half or so um, exclusively on the American Civil War. And what happened is what happens to a lot of people who start to look into this history, um, I fell down a rabbit hole and um, I discovered that I mean, this subject is still the most published subject in the country today. And so some of the best writers in America have written on this subject. So I, I absorbed a lot of this great writing. And so I was so compelled to actually go out and see these landscapes um, that um, and so one of the other things is that, of course, all these great writers have all this great material, but then there's a plethora of memoirs and letters that you can read in the Library of Congress of the soldiers who fought in this war. So I, I absorbed lots of memoirs as well, and um, it was through the memoirs and the illustrators of the period that I got my inspiration, because photographers really couldn't photograph the battles of the war in the 1860s. It was too dangerous. The equipment was too cumbersome. Um, and so I looked to the illustrators, the, 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 the painters and the artists who followed the armies and looked at their illustrations. And I tried to find similar things. Um, and at the reenactments, I was able to capture a couple of images or a number of images through this project that reminded me of these illustrator views um, they were typically far back. The illustrators would be a mile from the action or something. You would see these little puffs of smoke in the distance. And um, a few of the reenactments um, afforded views like that. And through the pinhole camera, this was the interesting, one of the interesting things about the pinhole camera, because those exposures were so long, the reenactors became anonymous at these events. So I, the photographs of the reenactments to me are more like illustrations if I could call them that, of what this had looked like um, if photographers would have been present. So I was sort of playing with this idea uh, through the pinhole camera. Everything would be blurred and somewhat poetic. So I could use those images and talk about the battles 
and people could sit back and look at those and sort of get a little bit more absorbed subject. So, um, under the cover of the book, um, is a photograph I took at Shiloh very early on in the project. It's a, it's a simple photograph of Union soldiers lined up, uh, in an open field. Um, what, they have the American the stars and stri- the holding the stars and stripes. And after spending an entire weekend at Shiloh, um, this, the, the, and spending most of that time with Southerners just as Confederates, seeing the stars and stripes there, my 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 heart actually fluttered a bit. And um, so um, I got quite absorbed in, in, into the project. And so. Uh, I mean, Mike, I have to say that because of the way the camera is, um, every image in this book and on the blog is, is like a little event because I have to set up the camera. There's no viewfinder, so it takes a lot of concentration and um, lots of thinking in the moment to make those photographs happen. Um, so each photograph in the book, I have a little story about each one of those photographs. So it's, it's a little difficult for me to pick out images, um, and talk about individual images because each one of them is really like a little event and a little story. There's one particular image and uh, there's one particular image, um, and this was at this small little event that they did in Chancellorsville, and it was a reenactment of the wounding of Stonewall Jackson. Um, this was a non-spectator event. So reenactments around the country, there are basically two types of reenactments. I, I learned this because I became a reenactor for this. There are what you call, they call mainstream events, which are sort of like um, what, Generally, people think when they think of reenactments, and this is where you'd find um, it's more like a weekend retreat um, hobbyists. And then there's these other reenactments that happen around the country, and these are run by these super hardcore hobbyists and Civil War buffs. And um, at those reenactments, um, there were things that I saw at those re- that would remind me of things that I read in the memoirs of the soldiers who fought in the war. And this reenactment of the the wounding of Stonewall Jackson was by this this group of young, hardcore reenactors. And I was able to get only one photograph of that event. This picture of Stonewall Jackson after he was wounded, laying on the ground with his officers around him. And I took this one photograph, but when I got back, there was a light leak in the camera or something. I'm, I'm using home pinhole cameras. The light somehow got into the camera that created this very dramatic streak of light that entered the camera and went across the entire image. And it, it obscures most of it, but it, it's almost as if the ghost of Stonewall Jackson showed up for this one photograph. So there were little things like that that occurred that I really can't explain. Um, and I could tell you when I was taking that photograph, there was a feeling in the air that was quite interesting. And, um, so there were, there were things like that that happened throughout this whole four year period that were quite striking to me personally. Um, it's probably having to do with the fact that my head so full with this subject, anything that was a little out of, 
a little extraordinary, really, really fired me up and made me want to write about it. Are you bringing copies of the book to the Civil War Roundtable on October 17th? Absolutely. How much does your book cost? $35. Okay. All right. Now, if you're not going to the Civil War Roundtable, where can you pick up the book? Um, this can be purchased on um, any of the major um, publishing websites, Amazon, Noble. Um, I just launched a website where I'm offering the book with a with a limited edition print, uh, and that could be found at falcopinhole.com. Falcopinhole.com? Yes. So that's a signed copy with a with a limited edition print for a little extra money, but it's you get a little just about. Okay, the name of the book, Echoes of the Civil War, Capturing Battlefields yeah. Through a Pinhole Camera. The author, our guest right now, Michael Falco, and he's going to be at the Civil War Roundtable on October 17th at the Three West Club. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As many of you know out in, in, in the listening audience, we spend a lot of time talking about history on this show. But every once in a while, it seems to me people don't really know history. But I think part of the problem right now, people are trying to change history. And our next guest is Jared Stepman. He has a book out, The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thank you very much. So what's your book? What is your book about? So my book is essentially about all the uh, attacks on, on American history, on, of course, I think what's well known as the attacks, especially in the last few years, on historical statues and monuments, but, but not just that. I think it's, it's more about the general attack on, on American history, starting from Christopher Columbus making my way through the founders, through the pilgrims, uh, and generally uh, creating a defense 
of what this country was built upon, not just not just the men who, who built this, this country and made it a great nation, but also the ideas that are uh, critical at the, uh, are at the heart of our republic. I think these things are really, especially given uh, modern academia and, and systems of education, I think these things really are under attack uh, by a lot of our institutions. And I think that creates a, a massive dilemma uh, in our future, especially as knowledge about civics and history uh, certainly is on, uh, is on the downswing. And a lot of Americans simply aren't informed when they're in school about what our history is about and why America really is what it is. Now, let me ask you, we're very close to Columbus Day. What's the assault on Columbus? What, what's behind that? And what are people saying and doing? This has kind of been a, a long-term attack on Christopher Columbus. It really started in the 1990s, with especially in Berkeley, where they had the first kind of attacks on Columbus Day. But it's really ramped up in recent years with people talking about taking statues down across the country, people throwing red paint over Columbus. And I think for many, they say that Christopher Columbus was uh, a genocidal maniac, that he came uh, across the ocean, essentially, and committed genocide and things like this. And unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, bad information out there, disinformation about the Lake for Columbus. And I think ultimately these attacks, which hard left historians like Howard Zinn, I think have an agenda behind them. Zinn, of course, was unhappy about the creation of, of things like capitalism, things like that in the New World, and uh, pinned things on Christopher Columbus for bringing not just uh, U.S. civilization, but American civilizations in general in the New World uh, to well, into being. And I think that I think a lot of the attacks on Columbus, Columbus is simply a proxy uh, for the creation of America, the United States. And I think a lot of people out there believe that our, at our roots, uh, this nation is built on something rotten. So Columbus is a perfect stand-in, a perfect punching bag uh, to use to attack this country. What is your perception of Christopher Columbus? What, what, what type of man was he? Uh, Christopher Columbus was a, a bold explorer, a person who uh, really symbolized, I think, a lot of, uh, honestly, today, what Americans think of themselves. I mean, we think of America, you know, we, put, we, put, we were the first to put a man on the moon. We're the only country to put a man on the moon. I think that that kind of bold uh, spirit of, of adventure and, and entrepreneurialism really uh, is so part of what we are. And I think that is absolutely what Columbus was. I mean, he took essentially three small ships. And if you, you've seen uh, uh, reconstructions of these things, they're just about 40 feet long. He took these across the Atlantic Ocean and did something that really nobody had done before. He, he sailed out uh, into open waters and, and risked a, gr- a great deal and made a discovery that changed uh, really human history. I think his accomplishments are absolutely incredible, uh, not only the bravery, but the determination to do what he did. I think there's a good reason why Americans have celebrated this man. I mean, I, I work in a place where I overlook a Union Station in Washington, D.C. We have Columbus Circle here, uh, which has a statue of Christopher Columbus. The founders understood that Christopher Columbus and his legacy are the reason why we exist. And so we should celebrate Christopher Columbus. Was he a perfect man? Of course not. Uh, but I think his legacy really does stand for itself, and, and Americans would be wrong to simply uh, ditch his legacy uh, now that he's being attacked. Now, what would you say to somebody, which somebody's going to tell you every once in a while, Christopher Columbus, wasn't he genocidal? Didn't he kill all the Indians? Yeah, I think that the attack is, Native is Americans. certainly deeply unfair. And a lot of the attacks on Columbus, unfortunately, came from a lot of the actions of conquistadors and those who, who came after him. In fact, Christopher Columbus, uh, in many ways, uh, he got some people say, well, he wasn't a very good governor and got recalled back to Spain it's because uh, he often defended a lot of the native people that he came in contact with. A lot of the Spanish sailors who sailed with him did mistreat uh, some of the natives and, and Columbus went after. In fact, he, he actually uh, punished them quite severely. And, and so I think, unfortunately, a lot of the attacks on Columbus are, are, again, he's become kind of a proxy for what is seen as 
bad actions in the new world, but a lot of these don't really stem from the real man, Christopher Columbus, who uh, certainly when you consider that the time period that he sailed in, I mean, this was after the Reconquista of Spain, the world was a very violent place. To particularly say that Christopher Columbus was genocidal or acted brutally, I think is deeply unfair and really doesn't match up with the historical record as it really is. Now, move forward 300 or so years later. A lot of our founding fathers, they were slaveholders. And and obviously, anybody who was a slaveholder, you know, in the 18th century was an evil man. Well, that's certainly become the kind of narrative. And I think, and, and I focus on very specifically, and I talk about specifically Thomas Jefferson, who has come under a lot of attack. I mean, there are some uh, at the University of Virginia, uh, the school that he founded, that want to essentially strip his visions from the school. They want to take down statues uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I think that's that's deeply unfortunate. And I think, yes, uh, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner, as many of the American founding fathers were. But at the same time, this is a man who wrote the Declaration of Independence. This is a man who wrote the, the lines, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and created a philosophy, a country that is committed to a principle of liberty uh, that made race-based slavery uh, an absurdity and, and ended up four score and seven years later uh, under another president. Uh, th- that institution would come to an end in this, in this country. In fact, would it very shortly come to an end in many places around the world, which is an incredible thing, given the long history uh, of enslavement in world history. And I think to, to look at the founders and say, well, you know, they had slavery, so we have to condemn them. I would say the real miracle there is that these men who did own slaves thought it as a great evil that needed to be extinguished. And I think their philosophy and the, and the government they created, the Constitution, allowed that to be extinguished forever. And I think that is a monumental achievement. And unfortunately, just saying, well, they, they had slaves, I, I think that that is an unfair attack when you look at it in context. We go to the Civil War now, and of course, one of the controversies, Confederate Civil War generous. And, and of course, every once in a while now, you, you people are attacking Union Civil War generals because they did something or another. But what do you have to say about the people who want all the Confederate Civil War generals, their statues torn down. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to me. And I, I've argued from the beginning, especially the initial attacks on a lot of these uh, Confederate generals, that really this war was over something else, that it would quickly move on to uh, Union soldiers, it would quickly move on to the founders. And I think it, it very much did. I think we've seen, you know, now William McKinley's uh, statues under attack in California. We even had the University of Wisconsin. Some have gone after Abraham Lincoln's statues. One of the organizers of this protest said that Lincoln had owned slaves, which is, of course, absurd. It's not true. And to me, and I, and I go back and talk about the legacy of what the Confederacy was and, and why it was important that uh, it was defeated. But at the same time, understand the humanity of, of many of those who fought in the war. And I, I do talk very much about the legacy of Robert E. Lee, who was, of course, a, a complicated figure in our history, but uh, for many after the war uh, symbolized the reunification of the country. I think the war symbolized the triumph of the ideas of Abraham Lincoln, but for this country to be rebuilt, there had to be people like Robert E. Lee, who told people not to raise their sons as Southerners, but as Americans. And uh, to me, uh, that's an incredible legacy. Both civil wars end uh, in unending violence. That They don't come together as a unified country after a civil war has taken place. You know, ours did. I mean, it was very stuttered, and certainly there was a lot of ugliness even after the war. But I think it's quite a miracle that this country was able to reunify with people who you know, fought for the North, who fought for the South, and we went through that complicated process 
fortunately, with the institution of slavery uh, extinguished in this country. And that's something to, to be celebrated and to be understood and understand the humanity of. Now, I, I just heard something from you, McKinley. Now, who's trying to take down McKinley's statue? I never heard of that one. Lincoln, I have, yes. But McKinley, what did well, he do? Well, there's a McKinley statue Spanish American in, War? in California. People say that he mistreated uh, Native Americans, that he generally fought wars. Uh, against Native American tribes, and therefore he needs to be taken down. And they have successfully taken down his statue. I can't remember what town in California it is, uh, but they've actually successfully taken down his statue. And this is some of the attacks on on Lincoln too. Uh, and I think what's what's very obvious in this kind of debate is that you know people try to pick out, well, you know, this guy owned slaves, this guy fought for the Confederacy, this guy did this or that. But when he really comes down to movement to kind of reshape and rewrite history. Uh, these individuals, I mean, at some point, you know, they're going to violate one of these things, you know, people see as social justice. And it's, frankly, most of the, the our history and world history is going to be seen as, as the imperfect thing that it is. We're very soon going to have a bunch of empty pedestals if we use this kind of, you know, revolving door of, of social justice. I mean, frankly, nobody's going to escape that that kind of magnifying glass. And really, we shouldn't look at history like that. We shouldn't try to say that, you know, the history should simply reflect our own ideals and what we are in 2019. I think that's, I think that's deeply fair, and I think that's what I try to communicate in the book as well. And there can be great men who have done incredible things and brought incredible benefits to this world who don't necessarily fit in exactly with what we believe in our time, who may be very complicated. And I think it's okay to understand history is complicated. I mean, there's so much ugliness in world history that the, the few great things that have come out of it are things that should be celebrated and furthered, not destroyed, not buried, because they don't check off all the boxes. What about, you know, I mean, it's some people, and it seems incredible to me, but there's some people, you know, that kind of like deny the Holocaust right now. Uh, th- there certainly is. And that's, uh, you know, obviously it's an incredible thing. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of, I think, anti-Semitism that's behind that as well. And I think that's, I think it just shows why it's so important to to teach history and teach civics. I mean, you can look at any polls about where these numbers are and people's understanding of these things, and they're pretty sorry shape, and especially here in the U.S. And I think that's a deep problem. I think that that creates a lot of misinformation. I think it it makes people more hostile to things in the past because they don't understand them. So yes, I, I absolutely agree that the kind of Holocaust denial, and I think there's some ideological element to this as well. Uh, it is deeply disturbing, and it requires, I think, uh, educating people and making them understand, no, these things really happened, and, and you know, they're beyond terrible. And, you know, especially now as we live in a world in which, especially in the United States, we have things so good, understanding the kind of terrible things that have happened, uh, to think that we live in some kind of horrible dark age that's uh, incredibly violent and terrible and, you know, it's awful, you know, look around at history and the things that have happened. I mean, we have it very good in this country, and I think that's something to be celebrated. Like a lot of people right now, it seems like the Soviet Union, that, that was a great idea. It just didn't quite work, where the United States of America has always been on the wrong side of history, at least according to some people. Yeah, I, this, this really, this narrative bothers me, especially when we talk about World War II and the legacy of that. I think there's a lot of, uh, currently, I think a lot of Russians try to say that it was really the Soviet Union that won World War II, that they were ultimately the ones who defeated Nazi Germany and things like this. And I do try to remind people beyond just the simple legacy of, of communism, which is you know, at least in some ways a longer legacy than the Nazism of, of tyranny and violence. Uh, the Soviet Union worked with Nazi Germany very early in the war to carve up Poland. I mean, they were not on the side of liberty and freedom. They were on the side of tyranny. They were on the side of 
uh, Adolf Hitler when it was convenient for them. Uh, in the United States and Great Britain, it stood uh, for, for free people across this globe. And, and, you know, though we didn't go out to the world seeking monsters, the monsters found us. And, and we uh, stood at the pinnacle of, well, frankly, the free world and stood against that. And, and without the contribution of the United States, a free country, uh, whether Europe would have been covered in either Nazi tyranny or Soviet communist tyranny. I mean, those are two different kinds of tyrannies, but they're an evil nonetheless. And I think that this kind of revisionism about the Soviet Union, that maybe they had some good ideas that went wrong, uh, I think that's baked into the ideology of communism. It's a collectivist, tyrannical ideology that leaves nothing but human misery in its wake. I think that's, again, it's part of the disinformation in our own times, this idea that, that we can kind of rehabilitate a regime that really was an empire of evil. Now, do you think there's any hope for the study of history in the United States? I, I think there is. Unfortunately, I think a, a lot of, uh, I would call academia or a lot of our elite institutions, I think, have failed in their job in this regard. Uh, but there is a lot of information out there. And, and, you know, our history, it's still there. I know there are a lot of people that are trying to bury it, that are trying to take down statues, are trying to, you know, work every day to teach young Americans that their country is a bad place. But, you know, this history still exists. I mean, there are primary documents to read. I mean, you can read the words of the Founding Fathers yourself. You know, we are very fortunate. We have things like the Constitution of the United States written in very plain words. And to me, I don't lose hope because I think a lot of common sense Americans just by instinct understand that, you know, they've been given a great gift, uh, this country, the United States. I think it's very obvious. And, you know, the information does still exist out there. It's simply a matter of educating people. It's simply a matter of standing up to those who, who want to liquidate our history, who want to tell people that uh, it was based on nothing but evil and, and rottenness. Uh, so, yes, uh, the answer is absolutely there's hope. And I, I do hope that my book, which is The War on History, The Conspiracy Rewrite America's Past, I hope that I can play a small part in correcting those narratives. Okay, again, the name of the book is The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past. The author, Jared Stepman, thank you for being on Connor's thank Corner. Thank you so much. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. 
I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. You know, we were just talking to Jared Stepman about the conspiracy to rewrite America's past. And of course, part of that rose is to try to take down the Christmas Columbus statues around the country. I don't know. Do you have any comments about that? Or I, I do, Mike. As, as an Italian-American, and ciao a tutti i miei uh, colleghi italiani che ascoltano qui, um, it's very upsetting. I was at Columbus Circle recently, and I was happy that the the statue was still there uh, because it is just absurd that they would try and take it down. And they organized a committee to look into it. I'm just glad that the statue is still there. But, you know, to rename it Indigenous People Day is just completely unacceptable. You know, what's his name? Williamson Murray, who was one of the guests on our show once, who's a noted historian who's, talk, who's taught General Petraeus and General Mathis and so forth. And he says, okay, what are we going to do? Call Montezuma? Montezuma was a cannibal. <laughs> so, you can't make this up. You know, you get, you're going to a statue to you know Native Americans who were cannibals okay, back then? Okay, now wait. I'm part Choctaw and who is so one of the great hero, heroes of the, the War of 1812? Push The Choctaw, the Choctaw leader. And who loved him? Andrew Jackson. Well, that's another thing. You know, Andrew Jackson was an evil man, so obviously he was an evil man. Because what? They, you know, they fought together in the War of 1812, which was American imperialist. uh, He loved, uh, he called him Push, and he loved him. And when he died, he he was buried in the the Congressional Cemetery with with a great big obelisk so you know it was just a case of you know helping the american imperialists whatever destroy the native americans in the country so you know he, he's obviously a bad guy in history but at least maybe jared stepman can set the record straight on that next week we're going to have uh stephen talty who's been an, an author who's written a number of uh, interesting books what we're going to be talking about is detective joseph petrosino and rose i know you heard the interview i mean did you know anything about detective petrosino very interesting interview. I, I never heard about him, and I'm, I'm excited to get the book and read more. Um, my parents came from Calabria down south, uh, and he was he was not far from there. And just to see the differences that he made in the NYPD and the innovative techniques that he used to um, infiltrate the mafia were very impressive. And I look forward to reading the book very much. Yeah, and I mean, we didn't get into it, but I, apparently he was a genuinely courageous man. And obviously he gave his life. For law and order, so to speak. I mean, he was he was murdered in you know in Sicily by he, the Black Hand, and he went to Palermo knowing that this is a guy who uh, was on newspapers and um, he was known in New York, which that always reaches Italy. So he went there despite probably the fear to his own life, and um, he 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 basically gave himself for the betterment of the Italian Americans in America, which is really just, we, we owe him a debt of gratitude. Okay, now we're going to be doing seminars at the end of October. We're going to do one set of sen- seminars at Bocelli's Restaurant. We're going to be there on October 28th at 11 o'clock, 3 p.m., 7 p.m. 
Rose, you're going to be there that day. You live in Staten Island, right? I'll be there that day. You guys have to come and check us out. Um, please bring your Italian-speaking relatives if they want to come and speak to me. I, I, I speak fluent Italian, so we can also talk with them, and they could um, participate in the seminar as well. We're right. We're, we're adjacent to um, – our office is adjacent to Bocelli's on the north shore of Staten Island. So please come on down. We're three times, 11, 3, and 7 o'clock. So come check us out, guys. As Joe Piscopo says, we're going to be doing three shows that day. Uh, <laughs> Love Joe Piscopo. <laughs> yeah. I do, too. He knows that's a tough job. <laughs> right. Now, on Tuesday, October 29th, we're going to be in, in Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan, at the Three West Club. So we're going to do two seminars that day, 11 o'clock and 3 p.m. Now, most of what we talk about at these seminars, what to do with your house, because that seems to be the main question. So we tell you how to transfer the house to your children without paying taxes, hopefully without paying taxes, avoiding going through probate, avoiding court, and trying to save your house from nursing home bills. So if that's on your mind and you have a question, give us a call at 718-238-6500. Come to one of our seminars. Again, and we're going to be in, in Staten Island on October 28th. We're going to be in Manhattan on October 29th. We'll be in Brooklyn then probably in early December. So keep tuned to our website. Website, but if you want to attend any of our seminars, you want to get information about our seminars, or if you run a not-for-profit and you want us to give a seminar for your organization, please feel free. Give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. I think Mr. Kincaid is telling us to go home. Bye-bye, everybody. Have a good day. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, October 28th at Bocelli Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and then again on Tuesday, October 29th in Midtown Manhattan at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.